Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. This is part two of, of At the Mountains of Madness. Um, if you are listening to this, you should go back and listen to last week's episode, um, just to get yourself all caught up, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Chapter three. None of us, I imagine, slept very heavily or continuously that morning. Both the excitement of Lake's discovery and the mounting fury of the wind were against such a thing. So savage was the blast, even where we were, that we could not help wondering how much worse it was at Lake's camp, directly under the vast unknown peaks that bred and delivered it. McTeague was awake at ten o'clock and tried to get Lake on the wireless as agreed, but some electrical condition in the disturbed air to the westward seemed to prevent communication. We did, however, get the Arkham, and Douglas told me that he had likewise been vainly trying to reach Lake. He had not known about the wind, for very little was blowing at McMurdo Sound, despite its persistent rage where we were. Throughout the day, we all listened anxiously and tried to get Lake at intervals, but invariably without results. About noon, a positive frenzy of wind stampeded out of the west, causing us to fear for the safety of our camp, but it eventually died down with only a moderate relapse at 2 p.m. After 3 o'clock, it was very quiet, and we redoubled our efforts to get Lake. Reflecting that he had four planes, each provided with an excellent shortwave outfit, we could not imagine any ordinary accident capable of crippling all his wireless equipment at once. Nevertheless, the stony silence continued, and when we thought of the delirious force the wind must have had in his locality, we could not help making the more direful conjectures. By six o'clock, our fears had become intense and definite, and after a wireless consultation with Douglas and Thorfinson, I resolved to take steps toward investigation. The fifth aeroplane, which we had left at the McMurdo Sound supply cache with Sherman and two sailors, was in good shape and ready for instant use, and it seemed that the very emergency for which it had been saved was now upon us. I got Sherman by wireless and ordered him to join me with the plane and the two sailors at the southern base as quickly as possible, the air conditions being apparently highly favorable. We then talked over the personnel of the coming investigation party and decided that we would include all hands, together with the sledge and dogs which I had kept with me. Even so great a load would not be too much for one of the huge planes built to our special orders for heavy machinery transportation. At intervals, I still tried to reach Lake with the wireless, but all to no avail. Sherman, with the sailors, Gunnarsson, and Larson, took off at 7.30 and reported a quiet flight from several points on the wing. They arrived at our base at midnight, and all hands at once discussed the next move. It was risky business sailing over the Antarctic in a single aeroplane without any line of bases, but no one drew back from what seemed like the plainest necessity. We turned in at two o'clock for a brief rest after some preliminary loading of the plane, but were up again in four hours to finish the loading and packing. At 7.15 a.m., January 25th, we started flying northwestward under McTeague's pilotage with ten men, seven dogs, a sledge, a fuel and food supply, and other items including the plane's wireless outfit. The atmosphere was clear, fairly quiet, and relatively mild in temperature, and we anticipated very little trouble in reaching the latitude and longitude designated by Lake as the site of his camp. Our apprehensions were over what we might find, or fail to find, at the end of our journey, for silence continued to answer all calls dispatched to the camp. Every incident of that four-and-a-half-hour flight is burned into my recollection because of its crucial position in my life. It marked my loss, at the age of fifty-four, of all that peace and balance which the normal mind possesses through its accustomed conception of external nature and nature's laws. Thenceforward, the ten of us, 
but the student Danforth and myself above all others were to face a hideously amplified world of lurking horrors which nothing can erase from our emotions, and which we would refrain from sharing with mankind in general if we could. The newspapers have printed the bulletins we sent from the moving plane telling of our non-stop course, our two battles with treacherous upper air gales, our glimpse of the broken surface where Lake had sunk his mid-journey shaft three days before, and our sight of a group of those strange, fluffy snow cylinders noted by Amundsen and Bird as rolling in the wind across the endless leagues of frozen plateau. There came a point, though, when our sensations could not be conveyed in any words the press would understand, and a latter point when we had to adopt an actual rule of strict censorship. The sailor, Larson, was first to spy the jagged line of witch-like cones and pinnacles ahead, and his shouts sent everyone to the windows of the great cabined plain. Despite our speed, they were very slow in gaining prominence, hence we knew that they must be infinitely far off, and visible only because of their abnormal height. Little by little, however, they rose grimly into the western sky, allowing us to distinguish various bare, bleak, blackish summits, and to catch the curious sense of fantasy which they inspired as seen in the reddish Antarctic light against the provocative background of iridescent ice-dust clouds. In the whole spectacle there was a persistent, pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation. It was as if these stark nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream, and complex gulfs of remote time, space, and ultra-dimensionality. I could not help feeling that they were evil things, mountains of madness whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss. That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and aeon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed austral world. It was young Danforth who drew our notice to the curious regularities of the higher mountain skyline, regularities like clinging fragments of perfect cubes, which Lake had mentioned in his messages, and which indeed justified his comparison with the dreamlike suggestions of primordial temple ruins on cloudy Asian mountaintops so subtly and strangely painted by Rorick. There was indeed something hauntingly Rorick-like about this whole unearthly continent of mountainous mystery. I had felt it in October when we first caught sight of Victoria Land, and I felt it afresh now. I felt, too, another wave of uneasy consciousness of archaean mythical resemblances, of how disturbingly this lethal realm corresponded to the evilly famed Plateau of Lang in the primal writings. Mythologists have placed Lang in Central Asia, but the racial memory of man or of his predecessors is long, and it may well be that certain tales have come down from lands and mountains and temples of horror earlier than Asia, and earlier than any human world we know. A few daring mystics have hinted at a pre-Pleistocene origin for the fragmentary necotic manuscripts, and have suggested that the devotees of Sithagua were as alien to mankind as Sithagua itself. Lang, wherever in space and time it might brood, was not a region I would care to be in or near, nor did I relish the proximity of a world that had ever bred such ambiguous and archaean monstrosities as those Lake had just mentioned. At the moment I felt sorry that I had never read the abhorred Necronomicon, or talked so much with that unpleasantly erudite folklorist Wilmarth at the university. This mood undoubtedly served to aggravate my reaction to the bizarre mirage which burst upon us from the increasingly opalescent zenith 
as we drew near the mountains and began to make out the cumulative undulations of the foothills. I had seen dozens of polar mirages during the preceding weeks, some of them quite as uncanny and fantastically vivid as the present example, but this one had a wholly novel and obscure quality of menacing symbolism, and I shuddered as the seething labyrinth of fabulous walls and towers and minarets loomed out of the troubled ice vapors above our heads. The effect was that of a cyclopean city of no architecture known to man or to human imagination, with vast aggregations of night-black masonry embodying monstrous perversions of geometrical laws. There were truncated cones, sometimes terraced or fluted, surmounted by tall cylindrical shafts here and there bulbously enlarged and often capped with tiers of thinnish scalloped disks, and strange beetling table-like constructions, suggesting piles of multitudinous rectangular slabs, or circular plates or five-pointed stars with each one overlapping the one beneath. There were composite cones and pyramids either alone or surmounting cylinders or cubes, or flatter truncated cones and pyramids, and occasional needle-like spires in curious clusters of five. All of these febrile structures seemed knit together by tubular bridges, crossing from one to the other at various dizzy heights, and the implied scale of the whole was terrifying and oppressive in its sheer gigantism. The general type of mirage was not unlike some of the wilder forms observed and drawn by the Arctic whaler Scoresby in 1820, but at this time and place, with those dark unknown mountain peaks soaring stupendously ahead, that anomalous elder world discovery in our minds, and the pall of probable disaster enveloping the greater part of our expedition, we all seem to find in it a taint of latent malignity and infinitely evil portent. I was glad when the mirage began to break up, though in the process the various nightmare turrets and cones assumed distorted, temporary forms of even vaster hideousness. As the whole illusion dissolved to churning opalescence, we began to look earthward again and saw that our journey's end was not far off. The unknown mountains ahead rose dizzily up like a fearsome rampart of giants, their curious regularities showing with startling clearness even without a field glass. We were over the lowest foothills now and could see amidst the snow, ice, and bare patches of their main plateau a couple of darkish spots which we took to be Lake's camp and boring. The higher foothills shot up between five and six miles away forming a range almost distinct from the terrifying line of more than Himalayan peaks beyond them. At length, Ropes, the student who had relieved McTeague at the controls, began to head downward toward the left-hand dark spot whose size marked it as the camp. As he did so, McTeague sent out the last uncensored wireless message the world was to receive from our expedition. Everyone, of course, has read the brief and unsatisfying bulletins of the rest of our Antarctic sojourn. Some hours after our landing, we sent a guarded report of the tragedy we found, and reluctantly announced the wiping out of the whole lake party by the frightful wind of the preceding day or of the night before. Eleven known dead, young Gedney missing. People pardoned our hazy lack of details through realization of the shock the sad event must have caused us, and believed us when we explained that the mangling action of the wind had rendered all eleven bodies unsuitable for transportation outside. Indeed, I flatter myself that, even in the midst of our distress, utter bewilderment, and soul-clutching horror, we scarcely went beyond the truth in any specific instance. The tremendous significance lies in what we dared not tell, what I would not tell now but for the need of warning others off from nameless terrors. It is a fact that the wind had brought dreadful havoc. Whether all could have lived through it, even without the other thing, is gravely open to doubt. 
The storm, with its fury of madly driven ice particles, must have been beyond anything our expedition had encountered before. One aeroplane shelter wall, it seems, had been left in a far too flimsy and inadequate state, was nearly pulverized, and the derrick at the distant boring was entirely shaken to pieces. The exposed metal of the grounded planes and drilling machinery was bruised into a high polish, and two of the small tents were flattened despite their snowbanking. Wooden surfaces left out in the blaster were pitted and denuded of paint, and all signs of tracks in the snow were completely obliterated. It is also true that we found none of the archaean biological objects in a condition to take outside as a whole. We did gather some minerals from a vast tumbled pile, including several of the greenish soapstone fragments, whose odd five-pointed rounding and faint patterns of grouped dots caused so many doubtful comparisons, and some fossil bones, among which were the most typical of the curiously injured specimens. None of the dogs survived, their hurriedly built snow enclosure near the camp being almost wholly destroyed. The wind may have done that, though the greater breakage on the side next to the camp, which was not the windward one, suggests an outward leap or break of the frantic beasts themselves. All three sledges were gone, and we have tried to explain that the wind may have blown them off into the unknown. The drill and ice-melting machinery at the boring were too badly damaged to warrant salvage, so we used them to choke up that subtly disturbing gateway to the past which Lake had blasted. We likewise left at the camp the two most shaken up of the planes, since our surviving party had only four real pilots, Sherman, Danforth, McTeague, and Ropes, in all, with Danforth in a poor nervous shape to navigate. We brought back all the books, scientific equipment, and other incidentals we could find, though much was rather unaccountably blown away. Spare tents and furs were either missing or badly out of condition. It was approximately 4 p.m., after wide plane cruising had forced us to give Gedney up for lost, that we sent our guarded message to the Arkham for relaying, and I think we did well to keep it as calm and non-committal as we succeeded in doing. The most we said about agitation concerned our dogs, whose frantic uneasiness near the biological specimens was to be expected from Poor Lake's accounts. We did not mention, I think, their display of the same uneasiness when sniffing around the queer greenish soapstones and certain other objects in the disordered region. Objects including scientific instruments, aeroplanes, and machinery, both at the camp and at the boring, whose parts had been loosened, moved, or otherwise tampered with by winds that must have harbored singular curiosity and investigativeness. About the fourteen biological specimens, we were pardonably indefinite. We said that the only ones we discovered were damaged, but that enough was left of them to prove Lake's description wholly and impressively accurate. It was hard work keeping our personal emotions out of this matter, and we did not mention numbers or say exactly how we had found those which we did find. We had by that time agreed not to transmit anything suggesting madness on the part of Lake's men, and it surely looked like madness to find six imperfect monstrosities carefully buried upright in nine-foot snow graves under five-pointed mounds punched over with groups of dots and patterns exactly like those on the queer greenish soapstones dug up from Mesozoic or Tertiary times. The eight perfect specimens mentioned by Lake seemed to have been completely blown away. We were careful, too, about the public's general peace of mind. Hence, Danforth and I said little about that frightful trip over the mountains the next day. It was the fact that only a radically lightened plane could possibly cross a range of such height, which mercifully limited that scouting tour to the two of us. On our return at 1 a.m., Danforth was close to hysterics, but kept an admirably stiff upper lip. 
It took no persuasion to make him promise not to show our sketches and the other things we brought away in our pockets, not to say anything more to the others than what we had agreed to relay outside, and to hide our camera films for private development later on. So that part of my present story will be as new to Pavodi, McTeague, Ropes, Sherman, and the rest as it will be to the world in general. Indeed, Danforth is closer-mouthed than I, for he saw, or thinks he saw, one thing he will not tell even me. As all know, our report included a tale of a hard ascent, a confirmation of Lake's opinion that the great peaks are of Archaean slate and other very primal crumpled strata, unchanged since at least middle Comanchean times, a conventional comment on the regularity of the clinging cube and rampart formations, a decision that the cave mouths indicate dissolved calcareous veins, a conjecture that certain slopes and passes would permit of the scaling and crossing of the entire range by seasoned mountaineers, and a remark that the mysterious other side holds a lofty and immense super-plateau, as ancient and unchanging as the mountains themselves, 20,000 feet in elevation, with grotesque rock formations protruding through a thin glacial layer and with low gradual foothills between the general plateau surface and the sheer precipices of the highest peaks. This body of data is in every respect true so far as it goes, and it completely satisfied the men at the camp. We laid our absence of 16 hours, a longer time than our announced flying, landing, reconnoitering, and rock-collecting program called for, to a long mythical spell of adverse wind conditions, and told truly of our landing on the farther foothills. Fortunately, our tale sounded realistic and prosaic enough not to tempt any of the others into emulating our flight. Had any tried to do that, I would have used every ounce of my persuasion to stop them, and I do not know what Danforth would have done. While we were gone, Pabody, Sherman, Ropes, McTeague, and Williamson had worked like beavers over Lake's two best planes, fitting them again for use, despite the altogether unaccountable juggling of their operative mechanism. We decided to load all the planes the next morning and start back for our old base as soon as possible, even though, indirect, that was the safest way to work toward McMurdo Sound, for a straight-line flight across the most utterly unknown stretches of the Aeon-dead continent would involve many additional hazards. Further exploration was hardly feasible in view of our tragic decimation and the ruin of our drilling machinery. The doubts and horrors around us, which we did not reveal, made us wish only to escape from this austral world of desolation and brooding madness as swiftly as we could. As the public knows, our return to the world was accomplished without further disasters. All planes reached the old base on the evening of the next day, January 27th, after a swift non-stop flight, and on the 28th we made McMurdo sound in two laps, the one pause being very brief and occasioned by a faulty rudder in the furious wind over the ice shelf after we had cleared the Great Plateau. In five days more, the Arkham and Miskatonic, with all hands and equipment on board, were shaking clear of the thickening field ice and working up Ross Sea with the mocking mountains of Victoria Land looming westward against a troubled Antarctic sky and twisting the wind's wails into a wide-ranged musical piping, which chilled my soul to the quick. Less than a fortnight later, we left the last hint of polar land behind us and thanked heaven that we were clear of a haunted, accursed realm where life and death, space and time have made black and blasphemous alliances in the unknown epoch since matter first writhed and swarmed on the planet's scarce-cooled crust. Since our return, we have all constantly worked to discourage Antarctic exploration and have kept certain doubts and guesses to ourselves with splendid unity and faithfulness. 
Even young Danforth, with his nervous breakdown, has not flinched or babbled to his doctors. Indeed, as I have said, there is one thing he thinks he alone saw, which he will not tell even me, though I think it would help his psychological state if he would consent to do so. It might explain and relieve much, though perhaps the thing was no more than the delusive aftermath of an earlier shock. That is the impression I gather after those rare, irresponsible moments when he whispers disjointed things to me, things which he repudiates vehemently as soon as he gets a grip on himself again. It will be hard work deterring others from the great white South, and some of our efforts may directly harm our cause by drawing inquiring notice. We might have known from the first that human curiosity is undying and that the results we announced would be enough to spur others ahead on the same age-long pursuit of the unknown. Lake's reports of those biological monstrosities had aroused naturalists and paleontologists to the highest pitch, though we were sensible enough not to show the detached parts we had taken from the actual buried specimens or our photographs of those specimens as they were found. We also refrained from showing the more puzzling of the scarred bones and greenish soapstones. While Danforth and I have closely guarded the pictures we took or drew on the super plateau across the range and the crumpled things we smoothed, studied in terror, and brought away in our pockets. But now that Starkweather Moor party is organizing, and with a thoroughness far beyond anything our outfit attempted. If not dissuaded, they'll get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic and melt and bore till they bring up that which we know may end the world. So, I must break through all reticences at last, even about that ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness. Chapter 4 It is only with vast hesitancy and repugnance that I let my mind go back to Lake's camp and what we really found there, and to that other thing beyond the mountains of madness. I am constantly tempted to shirk the details and to let hints stand for actual facts and ineluctable deductions. I hope I have said enough already to let me glide briefly over the rest. The rest, that is, of the horror at the camp. I have told of the wind-ravaged terrain, the damaged shelters, the disarranged machinery, the varied uneasiness of our dogs, the missing sledges and other items, the deaths of men and dogs, the absence of Gedney, and the six insanely buried biological specimens, strangely sound in texture for all their structural injuries, from a world forty million years dead. I do not recall whether I mentioned that, upon checking up the canine bodies, we found one dog missing. We do not think much about that till later. Indeed, only Danforth and I have thought of it at all. The principal things I have been keeping back relate to the bodies and to certain subtle points which may or may not lend a hideous and incredible kind of rationale to the apparent chaos. At the time, I tried to keep the men's minds off those points, for it was so much simpler, so much more normal, to lay everything to an outbreak of madness on the part of some of Lake's party. From the look of things, that demon mountain wind must have been enough to drive any man mad in the midst of this center of all earthly mystery and desolation. The crowning abnormality, of course, was the condition of the bodies, men and dogs alike. They had all been in some terrible kind of conflict and were torn and mangled in fiendish and altogether inexplicable ways. Death, so far as we could judge, had in each case come from strangulation or laceration. The dogs had evidently started the trouble, for the state of their ill-built corral bore witness to its forcible breakage from within. 
It had been set some distance from the camp because of the hatred of the animals for those hellish archaean organisms, but the precaution seemed to have been taken in vain. When left alone in that monstrous wind, behind flimsy walls of insufficient height, they must have stampeded, whether from the wind itself or from some subtle increasing odor emitted by the nightmare specimens, one could not say. But whatever had happened, it was hideous and revolting enough. Perhaps I had better put squeamishness aside and tell the worst at last, though with a categorical statement of opinion, based on the first-hand observations and most rigid deductions of both Danforth and myself, that the then-missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. I have said that the bodies were frightfully mangled. Now I must add that some were incised and subtracted from in the most curious, cold-blooded, and inhuman fashion. It was the same with dogs and men. All the healthier, fatter bodies, quadrupedal or bipedal, had had their most solid masses of tissue cut out and removed as by a careful butcher, and around them was a strange sprinkling of salt, taken from the ravaged provision chests on the plains, which conjured up the most horrible associations. The thing had occurred in one of the crude aeroplane shelters from which the plane had been dragged out, and subsequent winds had effaced all tracks which could have supplied any plausible theory. Scattered bits of clothing, roughly slashed from the human incision subjects, hinted no clues. It is useless to bring up the half-impression of certain faint snow prints in one shielded corner of the ruined enclosure, because that impression did not concern human prints at all, but was clearly mixed up with all the talk of fossil prints which poor Lake had been giving throughout the preceding weeks. One had to be careful of one's imagination in the lee of those overshadowing mountains of madness. As I have indicated, Gedney and one dog turned out to be missing in the end. When we came on that terrible shelter, we had missed two dogs and two men, but the fairly unharmed dissecting tent, which we entered after investigating the monstrous graves, had something to reveal. It was not as Lake had left it, for the covered parts of the primal monstrosity had been removed from the improvised table. Indeed, we had already realized that one of the six imperfect and insanely buried things we had found, the one with the trace of a peculiarly hateful odor, must represent the collected sections of the entity which Lake had tried to analyze. On and around that laboratory table were strewn other things, and it did not take long for us to guess that those things were the carefully, though oddly and inexpertly dissected parts of one man and one dog. I shall spare the feelings of survivors by omitting mention of the man's identity. Lake's anatomical instruments were missing, but there were evidences of their careful cleansing. The gasoline stove was also gone, though around it we found a curious litter of matches. We buried the human parts beside the other ten men, and the canine parts with the other thirty-five dogs. Concerning the bizarre smudges on the laboratory table and on the jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered near it, we were much too bewildered to speculate. This formed the worst of the camp horror, but other things were equally perplexing. The disappearance of Gedney, the one dog, the eight uninjured biological specimens, the three sledges, and certain instruments, illustrated technical and scientific books, writing materials, electric torches and batteries, food and fuel, heating apparatus, spare tents, fursuits, and the like, was utterly beyond sane conjecture, as were, likewise, the spatter-fringed ink bots on certain pieces of paper, 
and the evidences of curious alien fumbling and experimentation around the planes and all other mechanical devices, both at the camp and at the boring. The dogs seemed to abhor this oddly disordered machinery. Then, too, there was the upsetting of the larder, the disappearance of certain staples, and the jarringly comical heap of tin cans pried open in the most unlikely ways and at the most unlikely places. The profusion of scattered matches, intact, broken, or spent, formed another minor enigma, as did the two or three tent cloths and fur suits which we found lying about, with peculiar and unorthodox slashings conceivably due to clumsy efforts at unimaginable adaptations. The maltreatment of the human and canine bodies, and the crazy burial of the damaged archaean specimens, were all of a piece with this apparent disintegrative madness. In view of just such an eventuality as the present one, we carefully photographed all the main evidences of insane disorder at the camp, and shall use the prints to buttress our pleas against the departure of the proposed Starkweather Moor expedition. Our first act, after finding the bodies in the shelter, was to photograph and open the row of insane graves with the five-pointed snow mounds. We could not help noticing the resemblance of these monstrous mounds with their clusters of grouped dots to poor Lake's description of the strange greenish soapstones, and when we came on some of the soapstones themselves in the great mineral pile, we found the likeness very close indeed. The whole general formation, it must be made clear, seemed abominably suggestive of the starfish head of the Archaean entities, and we agreed that the suggestion must have worked potently upon the sensitized minds of Lake's overwrought party. For madness, centering in Gedney as the only possible surviving agent, was the explanation spontaneously adopted by everybody so far as spoken utterance was concerned, though I will not be so naive as to deny that each of us may have harbored wild guesses which sanity forbade him to formulate completely. Sherman, Pabody, and McTeague made an exhaustive aeroplane cruise over all the surrounding territory in the afternoon, sweeping the horizon with field glasses in quest of Gedney and of the various missing things, but nothing came to light. The party reported that the Titan barrier range extended endlessly to right and left alike without any diminution in height or essential structure. On some of the peaks, though, the regular cube and rampart formations were bolder and plainer, having doubly fantastic similitudes to Rorick-painted Asian hill ruins. The distribution of cryptical cave mouths on the black snow denuded summits seemed roughly even as far as the range could be traced. In spite of all the prevailing horrors, we were left with enough sheer scientific zeal and adventurousness to wonder about the unknown realm beyond those mysterious mountains. As our guarded message stated, we rested at midnight after our day of terror and bafflement, but not without a tentative plan for one or more range-crossing altitude flights in a lightened plane with aerial camera and geologist's outfit, beginning the following morning. It was decided that Danforth and I try it first, and we awaked at 7 a.m., intending an early flight. However, heavy winds, mentioned in our brief bulletin to the outside world, delayed our start till nearly nine o'clock. I have already repeated the noncommittal story we told the men at camp, and relayed outside after our return sixteen hours later. It is now my terrible duty to amplify this account by filling in the merciful blanks with hints of what we really saw in the hidden transmountain world, hints of the revelations which have finally driven Danforth to a nervous collapse. I wish he would add a really frank word about the thing which he thinks he alone saw, even though it was probably a nervous delusion, and which was, perhaps, the last straw that put him where he is. But he is firm against that. 
All I can do is repeat his later disjointed whispers about what set him shrieking as the plane soared back through the wind-tortured mountain pass after that real and tangible shock which I shared. This will form my last word. If the plain signs of surviving elder horrors in what I disclose be not enough to keep others from meddling with the inner Antarctic, or at least from prying too deeply beneath the surface of that ultimate waste of forbidden secrets and inhuman, aeon-cursed desolation, the responsibility for unnameable and perhaps immeasurable evils will not be mine. Danforth and I, studying the notes made by Pabody in his afternoon flight and checking up with a sextant, had calculated that the lowest available pass in the range lay somewhat to the right of us, within sight of camp, and about 23,000 or 24,000 feet above sea level. From this point, then, we first headed in the lightened plain as we embarked on our flight of discovery. The camp itself, on foothills which sprang from a high continental plateau, was some 12,000 feet in altitude. Hence, the actual height increase necessary was not so vast as it might seem. Nevertheless, we were acutely conscious of the rarefied air and intense cold as we rose, for, on account of visibility conditions, we had to leave the cabin windows open. We were dressed, of course, in our heaviest furs. As we drew near the forbidding peaks, dark and sinister above the line of crevasse-riven snow and interstitial glaciers, we noticed more and more the curiously regular formations clinging to the slopes, and thought again of the strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick. The ancient and wind-weathered rock strata fully verified all of Lake's bulletins and proved that these pinnacles had been towering up in exactly the same way since a surprisingly early time in Earth's history, perhaps over fifty million years. How much higher they had once been, it was futile to guess, but everything about this strange region pointed to obscure atmospheric influences unfavorable to change and calculated to retard the usual climactic processes of rock disintegration. But it was the mountainside tangle of regular cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths which fascinated and disturbed us most. I studied them with a field glass and took aerial photographs while Danforth drove, and at times I relieved him at the controls, though my aviation knowledge was purely in amateurs, in order to let him use the binoculars. We could easily see that much of the material of the things was a lightish archaean quartzite, unlike any formation visible over broad areas of the general surface, and that their regularity was extreme and uncanny to an extent to which poor Lake had scarcely hinted. As he had said, their edges were crumbled and rounded from untold aeons of savage weathering, but their preternatural solidity and tough material had saved them from obliteration. Many parts, especially those closest to the slopes, seemed identical in substance with the surrounding rock surface. The whole arrangement looked like the ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes, or the primal foundation walls of Kish, as dug up by the Oxford Field Museum expedition in 1929, and both Danforth and I obtained that occasional impression of separate cyclopean blocks which Lake had attributed to his flight companion Carroll. How to account for such things in this place was frankly beyond me, and I felt queerly humbled as a geologist. Igneous formations often have strange regularities, like the famous Giant's Causeway in Ireland, but this stupendous range, despite Lake's original suspicion of smoking cones, was above all else non-volcanic in evidence structure. The curious cave mouths near which the odd formations seemed most abundant presented another, albeit a lesser puzzle, because of their regularity of outline. They were, as Lake's bulletin had said, often approximately square or semicircular, as if the natural orifices had been shaped to greater symmetry by some magic hand. 
Their numerousness and wide distribution were remarkable, and suggested that the whole region was honeycombed with tunnels dissolved out of limestone strata. Such glimpses as we secured did not extend far within the caverns, but we saw that they were apparently clear of stalactites and stalagmites. Outside those parts of the mountain slopes adjoining the apertures seemed invariably smooth and regular, and Danforth thought that the slight cracks and pittings of the weathering tended toward unusual patterns. Filled as he was with the horrors and strangeness discovered at the camp, he hinted that the pittings vaguely resembled those baffling groups of dots sprinkled over the primeval greenish soapstones, so hideously duplicated on the madly conceived snow mounds above those six buried monstrosities. We had risen gradually in flying over the higher foothills and along towards the relatively low pass we had selected. As we advanced, we occasionally looked down at the snow and ice of the land route, wondering whether we could have attempted the trip with the simpler equipment of earlier days. Somewhat to our surprise, we saw that the terrain was far from difficult as such things go, and that despite the crevices and other bad spots, it would not have been likely to deter the sledges of a Scott, a Shackleton, or an Amundsen. Some of the glaciers appeared to lead up to wind-bared passes with unusual continuity, and upon reaching our chosen pass we found that its case formed no exception. Our sensations of tense expectancy as we prepared to round the crest and peer out over an untrodden world can hardly be described on paper, even though we had no cause to think the regions beyond the range essentially different from those already seen and traversed. The touch of evil mystery in these barrier mountains and in the beckoning sea of opalescent sky glimpsed betwixt their summits was a highly subtle and attenuated matter not to be explained in literal words. Rather was it an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association, a thing mixed up with exotic poetry and paintings and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. Even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity, and for a second it seemed that the composite sound included a bizarre musical whistling or piping over a wide range as the blast swept in and out of the omnipresent and resonant cave mouths. There was a cloudy note of reminiscent repulsion in this sound as complex and unplaceable as any of the other dark impressions. We were now, after a slow ascent, at a height of 23,570 feet, according to the aneroid, and had left the region of clinging snow definitely below us. Up here were only dark, bare rock slopes and the start of rough-ribbed glaciers, but with those provocative cubes, ramparts, and echoing cave mouths to add a portent to the unnatural, the fantastic, and the dreamlike. Looking along the lines of high peaks, I thought I could see the one mentioned by Poor Lake, with a rampart exactly on top. It seemed to be half lost in a queer Antarctic haze, such a haze, perhaps, as had been responsible for Lake's early notion of Vulcanism. The pass loomed directly before us, smooth and windswept between its jagged and malignly frowning pylons. Beyond it was a sky fretted with swirling vapors and lighted by the low polar sun, the sky of that mysterious farther realm upon which we felt no human eye had ever gazed. A few more feet of altitude and we would behold that realm. Danforth and I, unable to speak except in shouts amidst the howling, piping wind that raced through the pass and added to the noise of the unmuffled engines, exchanged eloquent glances. And then, having gained those last few feet, we did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien earth. Chapter 5 
I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror, and disbelief in our own senses as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond. Of course, we must have had some natural theory in the back of our heads to steady our faculties for the moment. Probably we thought of such things as the grotesquely weathered stones in the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, or the fantastically symmetrical wind-carved rocks of the Arizona desert. Perhaps we even half thought the sight a mirage like that we had seen the morning before on first approaching those mountains of madness. We must have had some such normal notions to fall back upon as our eyes swept that limitless, tempest-scarred plateau and grasped the almost endless labyrinth of colossal, regular, and geometrically eurythmic stone masses which reared their crumbled and pitted crests above a glacial sheet not more than forty or fifty feet deep at its thickest, and in places obviously thinner. The effect of the monstrous sight was indescribable, for some fiendish violation of known natural law seemed certain at the outset. Here, on a hellishly ancient tableland, fully twenty thousand feet high and in a climate deadly to habitation since a pre-human age not less than five hundred thousand years ago, there stretched nearly to the vision's limit a tangle of orderly stone which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but conscious and artificial cause. We had previously dismissed, so far as serious thought was concerned, any theory that the cubes and ramparts of the mountainsides were other than natural in origin. How could they be otherwise when man himself could scarcely have been differentiated from the great apes at the time when this region succumbed to the present unbroken reign of glacial death? Yet now the sway of reason seemed irrefutably shaken, for this cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks had features which cut off all comfortable refuge. It was, very clearly, the blasphemous city of the mirage in stark, objective, and ineluctable reality. That damnable portent had had a material basis after all. There had been some horizontal stratum of ice dust in the upper air, and this shocking stone survival had projected its image across the mountains according to the simple laws of reflection. Of course, the phantom had been twisted and exaggerated, and had contained things which the real source did not contain. Yet now, as we saw that real source, we thought it even more hideous and menacing than its distant image. Only the incredible, inhuman massiveness of these vast stone towers and ramparts had saved the frightful things from utter annihilation in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years it had brooded there amidst the blasts of a bleak upland. Corona Mundi, Roof of the World. All sorts of fantastic phrases sprang to our lips as we looked dizzily down at the unbelievable spectacle. I thought again of the eldritch primal myths that had so persistently haunted me since my first sight of this dead Antarctic world, of the demoniac plateau of Lang, of the Migo, or abominable snowman of the Himalayas, of the Nakotic manuscripts with their pre-human implications, of the Cthulhu cult, of the Necronomicon, and of the Hyperborean legends of formless Sethagua and the worse-than-formless star-spawn associated with that semi-entity. For boundless miles in every direction, the thing stretched off with very little thinning. Indeed, as our eyes followed it to the right and left along the base of the low, gradual foothills which separated it from the actual mountain rim, we decided that we could see no thinning at all, except for an interruption at the left of the pass through which we had come. We had merely struck at random a limited part of something of incalculable extent. 
The foothills were more sparsely sprinkled with grotesque stone structures, linking the terrible city to the already familiar cubes and ramparts which evidently formed its mountain outposts. These latter, as well as the queer cave mouths, were as thick on the inner as on the outer side of the mountains. The nameless stone labyrinth consisted, for the most part, of walls from ten to one hundred and fifty feet in ice-clear height, and of a thickness varying from five to ten feet. It was composed mostly of prodigious blocks of dark primordial slate, schist, and sandstone blocks, in as many cases as large as four by six by eight feet, though in several places it seemed to be carved out of a solid, uneven bedrock of Precambrian slate. The buildings were far from equal in size, there being innumerable honeycomb arrangements of enormous extent, as well as smaller separate structures. The general shape of these things tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced, though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices whose five-pointed ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications. The builders had made constant and expert use of the principle of the arch, and domes had probably existed in the city's heyday. The whole tangle was monstrously weathered, and the glacial surface from which the towers projected was strewn with fallen blocks and immemorial debris. Where the glaciation was transparent, we could see the lower parts of the gigantic piles, and we noticed the ice-preserved stone bridges which connected the different towers at varying distances above the ground. On the exposed walls we could detect the scarred places where other and higher bridges of the same sort had existed. Closer inspection revealed countless largish windows, some of which were closed with shutters of a petrified material originally wood, though most gaped open in a sinister and menacing fashion. Many of the ruins, of course, were roofless and with uneven though wind-rounded upper edges, whilst others of a more sharply conical or pyramidal model or else protected by higher surrounding structures preserved intact outlines despite the omnipresent crumbling and pitting. With the field glass we could barely make out what seemed to be sculptural decorations in horizontal bands, decorations including those curious groups of dots whose presence on the ancient soapstones now assumed a vastly larger significance. In many places, the buildings were totally ruined, and the ice sheet deeply riven from various geologic causes. In other places, the stonework was worn down to the very level of the glaciation. One broad swath, extending from the plateau's interior to a cleft in the foothills about a mile to the left of the pass we had traversed, was wholly free from buildings. It probably represented, we concluded, the course of some great river, which, in tertiary times, millions of years ago, had poured through the city and into some prodigious subterranean abyss of the Great Barrier Range. Certainly this was above all a region of caves, gulfs, and underground secrets beyond human penetration. Looking back to our sensations and recalling our dazedness at viewing this monstrous survival from aeons we had thought pre-human, I can only wonder that we preserved the semblance of equilibrium, which we did. Of course, we knew that something— chronology, scientific theory, or our own consciousness was woefully awry, yet we kept enough poise to guide the plane, observe many things quite minutely, observe many things quite minutely, and take a careful series of photographs which may yet serve both of us and the world in good stead. In my case, ingrained scientific habit may have helped, for above all my bewilderment and sense of menace, there burned a dominant curiosity to fathom more of this age-old secret, to know what sort of beings had built and lived in this incalculably gigantic place, 
and what relation to the general world of its time or of other times so unique a concentration of life could have had. For this place could be no ordinary city. It must have formed the primary nucleus and center of some archaic and unbelievable chapter of Earth's history, whose outward ramifications recalled only dimly in the most obscure and distorted myths, had vanished utterly amidst the chaos of terrene convulsions long before any human race we know had shambled out of apedom. Here sprawled a Paleogean megalopolis, compared with which the fabled Atlantis and Lemuria, Comorium and Uzeldarum, and Olathok in the land of Lomar, are recent things of today, not even of yesterday. A megalopolis ranking with such whispered pre-human blasphemies as Volusia, Relay, Ib in the land of Nar, and the nameless city of Arabia Deserta. As we flew above that tangle of stark titan towers, my imagination sometimes escaped all bounds and roved aimlessly in realms of fantastic associations, even weaving links betwixt this lost world and some of my own wildest dreams concerning the mad horror at the camp. The plane's fuel tank, in the interest of greater lightness, had only been partly filled, hence we now had to exert caution in our explorations. Even so, however, we covered an enormous extent of ground, or rather air, after swooping down to a level where the wind became virtually negligible. There seemed to be no limit to the mountain range or to the length of the frightful stone city which bordered its inner foothills. Fifty miles of flight in each direction showed no major change in the labyrinth of rock and masonry that clawed up corpse-like through the eternal ice. There were, though, some highly absorbing diversifications, such as the carvings on the canyon where that broad river had once pierced the foothills and approached its sinking place in the Great Range. The headlands at the stream's entrance had been boldly carved into cyclopean pylons, and something about the ridgy, barrel-shaped design stirred up oddly, vague, hateful, and confusing semi-remembrances in both Danforth and me. We also came upon several star-shaped open spaces, evidently public squares, and noted various undulations in the terrain. Where a sharp hill rose, it was generally hollowed out into some sort of rambling stone edifice, but there were at least two exceptions. Of these latter, one was too badly weathered to disclose what had been on the jutting eminence, while the other still bore a fantastic conical monument, carved out of the solid rock and roughly resembling such things as the well-known snake tomb in the ancient valley of Petra. Flying inland from the mountains, we discovered that the city was not of infinite width, even though its length along the foothills seemed endless. After about thirty miles, the grotesque stone buildings began to thin out, and in ten more miles we came to an unbroken waste virtually without signs of sentient artifice. The course of the river beyond the city seemed marked by a broad, depressed line, while the land assumed a somewhat greater ruggedness, seeming to slope slightly upward as it receded in the mist-hazed west. So far we had made no landing, yet to leave the plateau without an attempt at entering some of the monstrous structures would have been inconceivable. Accordingly, we decided to find a smooth place on the foothills near our navigable pass, there grounding the plain and preparing to do some exploration on foot. Though these gradual slopes were partly covered with a scattering of ruins, low flying soon disclosed an ampler number of possible landing places. Selecting that nearest to the pass, since our flight would be across the Great Range and back to camp, we succeeded about 12.30 p.m. in effecting a landing on a smooth, hard snowfield, wholly devoid of obstacles and well adapted to a swift and favorable takeoff later on. It did not seem necessary to protect the plane with a snow banking for so brief a time, 
and in so comfortable an absence of high winds at this level. Hence we merely saw that the landing skis were safely lodged, and that the vital parts of the mechanism were guarded against the cold. For our foot journey, we discarded the heaviest of our flying furs, and took with us a small outfit consisting of pocket compass, hand camera, light provisions, voluminous notebooks and paper, geologist's hammer and chisel, specimen bags, coils of climbing rope, and powerful electric torches with extra batteries. This equipment, having been carried in the plane on the chance that we might be able to effect a landing, take ground pictures, make drawings and topographical sketches, and obtain rock specimens from some bare slope outcropping or mountain cave. Fortunately, we had a supply of extra paper to tear up, place in a spare specimen bag, and use on the ancient principle of hare and hounds for marking our course in any interior mazes we might be able to penetrate. This had been brought in case we found some cave system with air quiet enough to allow such a rapid and easy method, in place of the usual rock-chipping method of trailblazing. Walking cautiously downhill over the crusted snow toward the stupendous stone labyrinth that loomed against the opalescent west, we felt almost as keen a sense of imminent marvels as we had felt on approaching the unfathomed mountain pass four hours previously. True, we had become visually familiar with the incredible secret concealed by the barrier peaks, yet the prospect of actually entering primordial walls reared by conscious beings perhaps millions of years ago, before any known race of men could have existed, was nonetheless awesome and potentially terrible in its implications of cosmic abnormality. Though the thinness of the air at this prodigious altitude made exertion somewhat more difficult than usual, both Danforth and I found ourselves bearing up very well, and felt equal to almost any task which might fall to our lot. It took only a few steps to bring us to a shapeless ruin worn level with the snow, while ten or fifteen rods farther on there was a huge roofless rampart, still complete in its gigantic five-pointed outline, and rising to an irregular height of ten or eleven feet. For this ladder we headed, and when at last we were actually able to touch its weathered cyclopean blocks, we felt that we had established an unprecedented and almost blasphemous link with forgotten aeons normally closed to our species. This rampart, shaped like a star and perhaps three hundred feet from point to point, was built of Jurassic sandstone blocks of irregular size, averaging six by eight feet in surface. There was a row of arched loopholes or windows about four feet wide and five feet high, spaced quite symmetrically along the points of the star and at its inner angles, and with the bottoms about four feet from the glaciated surface. Looking through these, we could see that the masonry was fully five feet thick, that there were no partitions remaining within, and that there were traces of banded carvings or bas-reliefs on the interior walls, facts we had indeed guessed before when flying low over this rampart and others like it. Though lower parts must have originally existed, all traces of such things were now wholly obscured by the deep layer of ice and snow at this point. We crawled through one of the windows and vainly tried to decipher the nearly effaced mural designs, but did not attempt to disturb the glaciated floor. Our orientation flights had indicated that many buildings in the city proper were less ice-choked, and that we might perhaps find wholly clear interiors leading down to the true ground level if we entered those structures still roofed at the top. Before we left the rampart, we photographed it carefully and studied its mortarless cyclopean masonry with complete bewilderment. We wished that Pabodi were present, for his engineering knowledge might have helped us guess how such titanic blocks could have been handled in that unbelievably remote age when the city and its outskirts were built up. The half-mile walk downhill to the actual city, with the upper wind shrieking vainly and savagely through the skyward peaks in the background, 
with something of which the smallest details will always remain engraved on my mind. Only in fantastic nightmares could any human beings but Danforth and me conceive such optical effects. Between us and the churning vapors of the west lay that monstrous tangle of dark stone towers, its outre and incredible forms impressing us afresh at every new angle of vision. It was a mirage in solid stone, and were it not for the photographs, I would still doubt that such a thing could be. The general type of masonry was identical with that of the rampart we had examined, but the extravagant shapes which this masonry took in its urban manifestations were past all description. Even the pictures illustrate only one or two phases of its endless variety, preternatural massiveness, and utterly alien exoticism. There were geometrical forms for which a Euclid would scarcely find a name, cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation, terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion, shafts with odd bulbous enlargements, broken columns and curious groups, and five-pointed or five-ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness. As we drew nearer, we could see beneath certain transparent parts of the ice sheet and detect some of the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled structures at various heights. Of orderly streets there seemed to be none, the only broad open swath being a mile to the left, where the ancient river had doubtless flowed through the town into the mountains. Our field glasses showed the external horizontal bands of nearly effaced sculptures and dot groups to be very prevalent, and we could half imagine what the city must once have looked like, even though most of the roofs and tower tops had necessarily perished. As a whole, it had been a complex tangle of twisted lanes and alleys, all of them deep canyons and some little better than tunnels because of the overhanging masonry or overarching bridges. Now, outspread below us, it loomed like a dream fantasy against a westward mist through whose northern end the low reddish Antarctic sun of early afternoon was struggling to shine. And when, for a moment, that sun encountered a denser obstruction and plunged the scene into temporary shadow, the effect was subtly menacing in a way I can never hope to depict. Even the faint howling and piping of the unfelt wind in the great mountain passes behind us took on a wilder note of purposeful malignity. The last stage of our descent to the town was unusually steep and abrupt, and a rock outcropping at the edge where the grade changed led us to think that an artificial terrace had once existed there. Under the glaciation, we believed, there must be a flight of steps or its equivalent. When at last we plunged into the town itself, clambering over fallen masonry and shrinking from the oppressive nearness and dwarfing height of omnipresent crumbling and pitted walls, our sensations again became such that I marvel at the amount of self-control we retained. Danforth was, frankly, jumpy, and began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp, which I resented all the more because I could not help sharing certain conclusions forced upon us by many features of this morbid survival from nightmare antiquity. The speculations worked on his imagination, too, for in one place, where a debris-littered alley turned a sharp corner, he insisted that he saw faint traces of ground markings which he did not like, whilst elsewhere he stopped to listen to a subtle, imaginary sound from some undefined point, a muffled musical piping, he said, not unlike that of the wind in the mountain caves, yet somehow disturbingly different. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arabesques had a dimly sinister suggestiveness we could not escape, and gave us a touch of terrible subconscious certainty concerning the primal entities which had reared and dwelt in this unhallowed place. Nevertheless, our scientific and adventurous souls were not wholly dead, 
and we mechanically carried out our program of chipping specimens from all the different rock types represented in the masonry. We wished a rather full set in order to draw better conclusions regarding the age of the place. Nothing in the great outer walls seemed to date from later than the Jurassic and Comanchean periods, nor was any piece of stone in the entire place of a greater recency than the Pliocene age. In stark certainty, we were wandering amidst a death which had reigned at least 500,000 years, and in all probability, even longer. As we proceeded through this maze of stone-shadowed twilight, we stopped at all available apertures to study interiors and investigate entrance possibilities. Some were above our reach, whilst others led only into ice-choked ruins as unroofed and barren as the rampart on the hill. One, though spacious and inviting, opened on a seemingly bottomless abyss without visible means of descent. Now and then we had a chance to study the petrified wood of a surviving shutter and were impressed by the fabulous antiquity implied in the still discernible grain. These things had come from Mesozoic gymnosperms and conifers, especially Cretaceous cycads, and from fan palms and early angiosperms of plainly tertiary date. Nothing definitely later than the Pliocene could be discovered. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. They seemed to have become wedged in place, thus surviving the rusting of their former and probably metallic fixtures and fastenings. After a time, we came across a row of windows in the bulges of a colossal five-edged cone of undamaged apex, which led into a vast, well-preserved room with stone flooring, but these were too high in the room to permit descent without a rope. We had a rope with us, but did not wish to bother with this twenty-foot drop unless obliged to, especially in this thin plateau air where great demands were made upon the heart action. This enormous room was probably a hall or concourse of some sort, and our electric torches showed bold, distinct, and potentially startling sculptures arranged round the walls in broad horizontal bands separated by equally broad strips of conventional arabesques. We took careful note of this spot, planning to enter here unless a more easily gained interior were encountered. Finally, though, we did encounter exactly the opening we wished, an archway about six feet wide and ten feet high, marking the former end of an aerial bridge which had spanned an alley about five feet above the present level of glaciation. These archways, of course, were flush with upper-story floors, and in this case one of the floors still existed. The building, thus accessible, was a series of rectangular terraces on our left facing westward. That across the alley, where the other archway yawned, was a decrepit cylinder with no windows and with a curious bulge about ten feet above the aperture. It was totally dark inside, and the archway seemed to open on a well of illimitable emptiness. Heaped debris made the entrance to the vast left-hand building doubly easy, yet for a moment we hesitated before taking advantage of the long-wished chance. For though we had penetrated into this tangle of archaic mystery, it required fresh resolution to carry us actually inside a complete and surviving building of a fabulous elder world whose nature was becoming more and more hideously plain to us. In the end, however, we made the plunge and scrambled up over the rubble into the gaping embouchure. The floor beyond was of great slate slabs and seemed to form the outlet of a long, high corridor with sculptured walls. Observing the many inner archways which led off from it, and realizing the probable complexity of the nest of apartments within, we decided that we must begin our system of hare and hound trailblazing. Hitherto our compasses, together with frequent glimpses of the vast mountain range between the towers in our rear, had been enough to prevent our losing our way. 
but from now on the artificial substitute would be necessary. Accordingly, we reduced our extra paper to shreds of suitable size, placed these in a bag to be carried by Danforth, and prepared to use them as economically as safety would allow. This method would probably gain us immunity from straying, since there did not appear to be any strong air currents inside the primordial masonry. If such should develop, or if our paper supply should give out, we could, of course, fall back on the more secure, though more tedious and retarding method of rock chipping. Just how extensive a territory we had opened up, it was impossible to guess without a trial. The close and frequent connection of the different buildings made it likely that we might cross from one to another on bridges underneath the ice, except where impeded by local collapses and geologic rifts, for very little glaciation seemed to have entered the massive constructions. Almost all the areas of transparent ice had revealed the submerged windows as tightly shuttered, as if the town had been left in that uniform state until the glacial sheet came to crystallize the lower part for all succeeding time. Indeed, one gained a curious impression that this place had been deliberately closed and deserted in some dim bygone aeon, rather than overwhelmed by any sudden calamity or even gradual decay. Had the coming of the ice been foreseen? and had a nameless population left en masse to seek a less doomed abode. The precise physiographic conditions attending the formation of the ice sheet at this point would have to wait for later solution. It had not very plainly been a grinding drive. Perhaps the pressure of accumulated snows had been responsible, and perhaps some flood from the river or from the bursting of some ancient glacial dam in the Great Range had helped to create the special state now observable. Imagination could conceive almost anything in connection with this place. <sighs> and that is the end of part two of the Mountains of Madness. Oh my god, this is a this is a trek right here, this one is. These are gonna be long episodes, everybody. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for sticking around. Um I hope you're enjoying the Mountains of Madness at the Mountains of Madness. Um, and all of the repeated uses of the phrase, the mountains of madness. Um, thank you all so much, so, so much. I am completely unworthy of your time and attention, and I am so grateful that you choose to uh, give it every week. I really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you want to reach me on Twitter, you can find me at WeirdTalesPod. If you want to email me, uh, you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. Um, one of the uh, voice acting bits that I've been doing, it was just recently released. It's, uh, it's a show called Sector Zero, um, and uh, I, I have a bit part. Not, it's not really a bit part. I appear in four episodes, uh, episodes 21, 22, 23, and 24, but you might want to go back and just kind of listen to the whole thing just to kind of understand what's going on. Um, this, uh, it, it's, it was a lot of fun to record this part, and I really, I really had a lot of fun doing it, and uh, I hope you all decide to give it a listen. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I will see you for part three of the Mountains of Madness next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. Um, this is the continuation of the Mountains of Mad At the Mountains of Madness. This is the continuation of At the Mountains of Madness. This is part two. So if you are starting with this episode, you should go back at least one week and listen to part one. I mentioned that because somebody mentioned to me one day that I should do that. Reflecting that he had four planes, each provided with an excellent shortwave radio outfit, we could not imagine any ordinary... I'm going to go back a little bit because I don't know if you picked, up that, picked that car up. Reflecting that he had four planes, each provided with an excellent shortwave outfit, we could...
All right, are we done with the car engines? We did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien Earth. Okay, <laughs> that's that's the end of the chapter. The chapter ends there. <clears throat> we did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien Earth. That we had seen the morning before on first approaching those mountains of madness. That's five times now that he's used that phrase in three chapters. I am, in the true style of a Lovecraft protagonist victim, recording this under a considerable strain. I'm down to the last ten minutes of this chapter, and then this part of the show will be done, and uh, I can start editing. Yay! But I, uh, in between recording the last bit and this bit, I, I went to work, and while I was at work, I sliced my finger open extremely badly, um, and uh, so right now I'm dealing with a bleeding finger, and I am trying to hold it over my head while I'm recording. It's just a lot of fun. <clears throat> also, my wife's computer is just playing in the background there. Hold on. Just randomly running, because that's what she does with YouTube. She turns it on and just lets it go. All right. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. There are so many dashes in this sentence, I have no idea how to read it. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. Oh, I get it now. I got this. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. Nailed it. First try. Had the coming of the ice been foreseen, and had a nameless population left en masse to seek a less doomed town, had been left in... Nope. Page didn't turn, and I started over at the beginning of that page. <clears throat> 